welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show today is New York Times bestselling author Dan Coyle. He's the author of The Talent Code and The Culture Code. He's also top advisor to some of the nation's highest performing organizations, including Google, Microsoft, and the Navy SEALs. Welcome. Thanks for having me back on the show. We did a podcast last week where we discussed some of the concepts of how deep talent is formed. And what we want to do this week, so first of all, I just want to, um, again, pay tribute to Dan as an author. Um, Culture Code is his newest book. Um, he's a mentor to many high-performing organizations, the Navy SEALs, Microsoft, Google, and he took a lot of disparate beds of talent he discussed in the last podcast and figured out a common denominator, which made it really clear how talents form. And as I read this book years ago, I realized, well, wait a second, this is how chronic pain is formed. It's also how you can solve it. So I um, have recommended this book to probably thousands of people at this point as a starting point. First of all, um, I really do, I'm a fan of Dan's writing. He's a very great storyteller. I wish I could tell stories as well as he does, but I really like what he does. And his books are very entertaining, but it's a nice light way to actually start in the healing project because people are so used to fix themselves. When they look at the talent code, they go, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. There's hope for me in a way. So Dan, thank you for your contribution. I know you weren't originally planning on writing about chronic pain when you wrote about the talent code. Is that a fair statement? The funnest part of writing a book is the surprises you get after the book is in the world. And the people who respond to it are always um, people you wouldn't have imagined, you know, and I, you're, you're in that group and it's a, it's a pleasure to connect. So our stock traders love the book. Uh, it's just, it's just funny though, the, the places it brings you, as you know. Yeah. And I've just had all sorts of people, golf instructors, different instructors read the book and change the way they teach golfers. Um, so what we're going to do is actually unpack a little bit what we talked about in the last part. So I'll briefly list the three parts of deep learning, which is, um, I'm sorry, deep formation of talent, which is deep learning. Second one is motivation, or what he calls ignition. And the third one is master coaching. So I want to talk about the deep learning first in relationship to chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So Dan, could you briefly describe again, deep learning for us? And I'm going to bring the chronic pain part in quickly. Yeah, it, it is the process of changing your brain to get better at stuff. And it involves going to the edge of your current ability, making mistakes, feeling those mistakes, and then and making another attempt. And so that, that process of being on your ragged edge is what, what builds skill. So here's the thing in chronic pain. So one of the biggest factors somehow in this pursuit of a pain-free life, people want a pain-free life. Well, that's not life. I mean, life keeps coming at us all the time, right? We also know that pain isn't the problem, it's the reaction to it or the anxiety. So anxiety is actually the problem. So what happens, people make mistakes, then they become afraid of taking risk or they're doing the pain process really well for a month or two. All of a sudden they go right back into the hole and they think they failed. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned to do is coach people in and out of the hole. So it doesn't matter how many times you go into what I call the abyss or the dark hole is how you come back out. Mm -hmm. And so you go in and you learn the skills that, okay, I'm in the hole. I mean, honestly, when you live in the hole all the time, you don't even know what the hole looks like anymore, but now you're out of the hole, you go back in the hole and you think you failed. So a huge part of 
treating chronic pain is learning to, I call, fail well. Mm. So it. it's interesting, the deep learning, can you describe it? And so one other comment is um, people have fear avoidance, catastrophizing. Um, they have PTSD. This didn't work before. I'm never going to do, do it again. Or an example, which is common, people have a failed relationship. They just don't want to do relationships again. No, they quit taking risk. So as you quit taking risk, life starts becoming really small. And again, avoiding stress is actually more more stressful than dealing with stress. So it's learning how to process stress effectively, which means lots of, quote, failures. In other words, if it wasn't stressful, you're not going to fail. So we're not going to have a life that's guaranteed to be peaceful all the time. So really, the essence of solving chronic pain is actually learning how to process stress effectively. So any thoughts on that, Dan? I know I, know, I realize Dan does have a noblest medical background. He did mention prior to the podcast that he uh, thought about medical school and then uh, decided to produce true talent, which is re- truly writing. So um, any thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting how much that resonates with this idea, this, this automatic discomfort we have around failure is, is a really powerful reaction. It is, we can't help it. It feels uncomfortable or culturally kind of taught to approach failure as if it is a verdict. We, we tend to see it as a verdict. And what you find among great performers is that they have a very different attitude toward failure. One of the people who was the best at it, um, at embodying this was Wayne Gretzky who your listeners know is a pretty good hockey player, maybe the best who ever lived. After games, occasionally he would, and he was, he was, a, he was also the weakest person on his team. He could bench press the least. He wasn't particularly fast skater, um, but he was the best and he was best for a few different reasons. But I think probably the, the most important was his attitude toward making mistakes. Occasionally after games, he would skate around by himself and his teammates would see him fall over. He's the best hockey player on the planet. He's falling over. And he, why? And he would say, well, I, I can't get better unless I go. I don't know where my edge is unless I go over my edge. He, he, will, he would be skating in such a way as to take himself right to the edge and then over. And you can't know where that is. And so he would not view his falling down as an embarrassing failure, which most people would, right? Falling down. He saw that as part of the process. If you don't know where that edge is, you can't master it and you can't push it out a little bit further. And that story kind of embodies the attitude of good performers and great performers toward mistakes. They don't see them as verdicts. They see them as information. So they cool them off. That's really fascinating because one of the biggest factors in um, chronic pain is fear avoidance. And you're saying really to learn a skill, you have to actually um, be able to engage with fear and actually learn from it. Engage, learn from it and reframe it. Because what you're feeling, you know, he, he's, he's not afraid of judgment because he's framing it as something that is not judgment. It's not connected to his identity. Of course, and instead of saying like, oh, um, you know, oh, oh, no, I made a mistake. It's, oh, interesting. I made a mistake. I'm curious about that mistake. I want to learn more about what's on the other side of that mistake. I want to, I don't want to see, I don't want to feel the world's eyes on me. I want to have my eyes on that mistake. And so treating it like, like a point on a map that you're building, like every skill is like building a map, right? You're trying to get out in this territory where you don't know where things are. You're like a a blind person feeling around in a, in a room for furniture. And so as you go through that process, when you bump into something, it shouldn't be, ow, I hurt myself. It should be, hmm, what's this? 
And that's how you build a map. And that's how you push your knowledge and your awareness and the spotlight of what you understand out a little further and out a little further and out a little further. And every time you fail, it's actually kind of mistakes are your friend. I mean, the people who are the best in the world at what they do are the best because they make the most productive mistakes. They make the most mistakes and they make the most productively. They get the most out of them. So they say, wow, interesting. That's where my edge is. I wonder what happens there. And they learn from that and learn from that and learn from that. And that's what makes them get better. So a core concept of the healing journey is awareness. And this is exactly what you're describing. Instead of just reacting and being frustrated and not doing it again, you become aware and curious. Um, and that, and that's, I love the way you just said that. So there's a person I want to introduce you to at some point. He's one of the most successful people I know. He is remarkable of um, his concept is never waste a crisis. And when he hits obstacles, he just does not review them as obstacles at all. And he is the most successful people I know, both personally, personal life, outlook, and just owns real estate, computer clouds, um, scientific thing. I mean, he's unbelievably productive, but his whole thing, he just refuses to dwell on negativity. He views every obstacle as an opportunity to learn what to do next. He also looks flat out looks for opportunity in the middle of a crisis. It's unbelievable how he thinks and he's disciplined. He's done it over and over and over again. His point is we're all programmed with negativity from society and parents. Why not program your brain with positivity? To program, learn skill. But unless you, quote, fail and acknowledge a failure and feel the failure, you can't actually change direction. So if you're trying to spend time covering up these failures or running from them or whatever you're trying to do with them, you, you, first of all, it sucks the energy right out of you and you're not going to grow and move forward. So yeah, that's I, I love the way you just said that. That's really, really excellent. The second thing I want to talk about is the um, motivation or the ignition. Do you want to explain that really briefly to the audience? Well, the idea is that doing this kind of work is not easy. It is not, It requires a tremendous amount of energy. It requires a tremendous amount of focus. And what you find when people are in these places where they're building skill is they're doing it for these deep reasons in their identity. They're doing it because they've seen a vision of their future self and what they might be. And that has ignited. That's how the human motivation system works. Like we know how our cardiovascular system works. We know how our digestive system works. Well, our motivational system works when we see a vision of our future self and we, we get lit up by that. And we all can reflect in times in our lives. You know, listeners can each probably reflect on a moment in their life where they met someone, saw something and said, man, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. And it's a deep identity thing. And so that moment um, ends up being playing really big in the development of all kinds of skill. And you see it all the time when you try to get someone to get healthier um, just to get healthier, right? If you're seven, trying to convince a 75 year old man to eat healthier. But then if you change it a little bit and you say, do you want to dance at your grandkids' wedding? Do you want to dance at that wedding? Well, you'll find a completely different reaction. You know, they may now have the ignition that it takes to want to um, eat a little better and, and maybe engage in some mobility exercises that'll get them to that spot. So the, what's happening when we see a vision of our future self is sort of a narrative trick that our brains are, that are, that our brains are capable of doing, uh, narrative magic in a way where we're saying, oh, I want to get there. All of a sudden, we can orient our focus in a new way. We can access new levels of attention and energy in new ways. And so 
That's why the process of reflection is so important to any type of skill building process because reflection and pausing and thinking deeply about that and getting clarity on that is a really, really important part of the, that's what gives you your fuel tank, right? You can do the practice all you want, but if you don't have the fuel tank, you're not going to want to do it very often and you're going to give right. up quickly. Right, so in chronic pain, this is a problem because what happens is that anxiety really is the problem, not the pain. And anxiety is just an activated nervous system. It's a million times more powerful than your conscious brain and it becomes stronger with repetition. So going into the model of chronic pain, chronic pain fits the model of genius. We become geniuses at feeling pain. We have very specific impulses that come at us day after day after day with repetition and they're automatic program responses that we can't control. So you can't control them, but you can reprogram them. So you have to feel to heal is one of our sayings. You have to feel the pain, feel the anxiety and say, okay, this is what I'm feeling. You can't avoid it because first of all, you're not going to avoid it. Second of all, is what keeps you alive. And so chronic pain fits the definition of, a, of you know, rapid programming. So, it, so what happens is this vision gets buried, but the essence of healing is you create a vision of what do you want? You want to keep a staying a victim of pain or you want a different life. But what happens is they're so buried by anxiety and anger that they can't see that vision anymore. So it's a process against a process back and forth of learning how to process the anxiety and anger very empirically and dispassionately, and then reconnecting with that vision. So one of the strategies that people use is just remember like the best time of your life, what it was, scoring a soccer goal, you know, the first problem, whatever it was, it was such a great event in your life and just spend time with it. Remember it, visualize it, feel it. Mm -hmm. And you get to reconnect to that vision again because what happens with neuroplasticity your brain really does switch from pain circuits to pleasure circuits. The pain really does go away. It does go away. Chronic pain is a solvable problem, but you have to reconnect with that vision. And again, really a critical factor in what you're talking about. So again, as you develop neuroplasticity, your brain shifts more onto these new circuits and less on the old, why people heal. And a, and a metaphor I use, I used to play trumpet in high school. Of course, I can't do it anymore. But those circuits are there. You know, I can reconnect with them. I can't learn clarinet the same I can learn my trumpet. Mm -hmm. So pain pathways are permanent. So are pleasure pathways. And as the as you unbury, as you start to de-energize these anxiety pain circuits, then you get to actually connect with your vision. And that's really, really critical in motivation. One of the most famous patients I dealt with, I won't get into the story at all, went through horrendous odds to get back on her feet unbelievable odds her motivation was and she'd been this way for 20 years and her motivation was i want to play with my four-year-old grandson that's what that's what drove her to do this whoa that's so powerful that's so powerful well and as you were talking i was thinking too of something that a, that a neurologist told me about skill and maybe it applies to your world too but that pathways um, in our brain are sort of like uh sled tracks on a snowy hill you know that the more you use them, the more your sled will go down. Them. And so to build new tracks takes time and each repetition makes those tracks move a little faster and a little smoother. Um, and you can never get rid of the old tracks. They're still there. You know, they're still, they still exist. Right. Um, but you have to build sort of a new sled track. Right. Well, humans are unique because compared to other creatures, let's talk about other mammals for a second. We have 20% of our metabolic energy is to use to run our brain. 20%. 
That's a lot. And about six to 8% is used in other mammals. So there's a tremendous amount of energy used to run our nervous system and these circuits are powerful and we have language which, which makes it way more complicated. And so, yeah, the, so what happens, we, we're programmed by our entire life up to this very second. So another factor that comes into play with this ignition process is that you develop a life lens or life perspective or filter. So everything comes through that filter. So if you have filter X, everything's gonna be a product of filter X. And one of the processes of neuroplasticity is you teach people how to change the filter, or as you call it, reframing it. So if you wanna reframe it in a victim mindset, of course, that becomes stronger. If you wanna reframe it a different way, that becomes stronger. But at some tipping point, usually around processing anger, people's life length changes dramatically and they actually can't go back. Once you cross that divide of healing, you have to make a conscious choice. You know, I don't like feeling good. I'm going to go back to feeling bad. Now, when you're feeling bad, you may be so buried that you may, may not be able to make that choice of feeling better. And that's where we have to work with the process to get you there. But once you change that life filter, it's a permanent change. Things come in processed a different way. And again, the deep learning process comes into place. Ignition comes into place. So if you program your brain through the, program your brain through this new life outlook, that becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. Neat. No, it's true. It's just amazing how how much of this is rooted in 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 learning. You know? Yeah. So anyway, so the final thing I want to talk about is this master coaching. And uh, do you want to explain that really quickly for us? Yeah. Whenever your people do not develop skill alone, they are always surrounded by uh, a supportive cast, and the key member of that supportive cast is often someone who fills this role of being a master coach who has got in their head a couple of things. The first is deep knowledge on how it works, right? Um, deep knowledge on how, whether that is a, uh, how to play a violin, how to do the high jump. They understand the techniques and the physics and the movement and the skill in a deep structural way. And the other, the other thing, the other skill that they possess is the ability to connect with people about it the emotional athleticism to find a point of connection. You know, coaching is extremely difficult. You have to have an idea in your head. You have to translate that into words, say those words to somebody. They have to take those words and they have to translate them into some kind of a change. And it's astonishing that it works at all, actually. Um, and the role of these and the presence of these, you know, immensely skilled master coaches at every town hotbed was really a, a striking pattern. It was like, when I visited them for the talent code, it was like I kept meeting the same person everywhere I went. They were, they were incredibly knowledgeable, tough, great communicators, um, and had that emotional athleticism to give the same instruction to someone five times in a row in slightly different ways, like probing, looking to see if that, if that way impacted. Then let's try this way. Then let's try that way. Then let's try this way. And that, that immense kind of tinkerish patience um, as a communicator to keep delivering that message until they get the result that they're hoping for and looking for. Wow, that's really powerful. I guess <laughs> I have to unpack that one myself because, you know, in medicine, we're moving pretty fast. And so I don't know you, you don't know me. I can't really read the subtle cues. Are you stressed? Are you happy? What are your coping skills? And so, you know, the essence of symptoms are when your stress is overwhelming your coping skills, you go into threat physiology. Well, if I don't know you as a person and your coping skills, how can I coach you? How can I make the right decisions? If I'm not aware of the whole situation, how can I make the correct decisions? 
And so a master coach has to know their players well, right? Their yep. strengths or weaknesses, what they need to work on, what they need to back off on. And so that's very, very interesting. The other thing, I like to just go back to the um, John Wooden analogy used about the basketball players tying their shoes for the mm -hmm. first part of training, because it has to do with the way I train my fellows, which they weren't really fond of me for a few weeks. And I'll tell you that story in a second. But if you could do, I didn't, I, uh, that story always stuck with me also. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first things he did, and this is, you know, legendary coach, John Wooden, he coached at UCLA. I think he won uh, 11 national championships there. Universally acknowledges the best coach and teacher of basketball of all time. And one of the first things he did each, each, each year with his new players was to teach them how to put on their socks and tie their shoes. And they'd gather around and he would do it. He would, he would show how to get the snock nice and snug there. So you wouldn't have any looseness that might bring blisters and get a nice snug lace. And he did it uh, for, for a bunch of reasons, but one of the reasons was to establish a standard of a level of detail to say, it's not how you do anything is how you do everything is sort of the message. And to say really, really clearly, there's nothing too small on this team. There's a, every detail is gonna help us be better. And we are gonna look at every single detail. Another little thing he did was he would pick up trash in the locker room. They'd look around and see the most successful coach in history picking up jock straps and towels on the floor. And what does that say, right? What, is, what sort of signal of support, of standard, of care, what kind of example does that send? So master coaches do not simply operate like some kind of a, a, an app that, that burps out a cure when you plug in your symptom. That's not what they do. Um, they connect to the whole person, they establish a whole culture, they create a whole environment with a lot of different signals in it, and they operate at a, uh, at, at a more uh, intimate, uh, intense level than just a, just a standard issue teacher would. Now, that's really, really interesting because, yeah, no, it, it's, uh, so what I used to do with my fellows, so I had a performance coach, David Alamey, who was, we taught athletic performance principles to our surgeons. And so one of the things physicians tend to do what you're not going to like to hear is they tend to rush. You know, we're in a productivity schedule, we tend to rush. And so what happens when you're rushed, so the, the model was performance equals skill minus interference. So skill sets, of course, came from repetition and learning. But if you're anxious, angry, frustrated, or distracted, you can make a mistake. Mm -hmm. So we taught mindfulness-based surgery where we say, look, if you're in angry, frustrated, just take a deep breath, take a second, and then go to feel. And we created surgery as like a sculpting event and we call it the safe zone. So we had a wonderful experience with that. So our complication rate dropped to the floor, but what was also critical was the skill part of it. And again, coming from your book and you could be responsible for lots of patients doing well, by the way, is that we told them how to hold the cog elevator, which is our dissecting tool. They held, had to hold the knife at a certain angle. They had to move in a certain direction. And these were neurosurgeons who had been seven years of residency, they were licensed to go practice. And I took them back to day one of their residency and they hated me for it. And I said, look, look at a concert pianist. I mean, where does that speed come from? Mm -hmm. It comes from precision. It doesn't come from rushing. And so what would happen over six weeks? I mean, they couldn't breathe without me having them do it correctly. Mm. And so what would happen is they started to habituate those really precise moves. Their complication rate dropped, their enjoyment went up. 
And of course, they ended up doing the surgery more quickly with much more precision. And eventually, they developed this earworm of Hanscom's voice. They couldn't get it out of their head. <laughs> but 10 years later, they're still doing the same thing over and over again. Of course, with repetition and precise moves, yeah. they got much better over time. And then also you come with the 10,000 hour rule. Um, most surgeons will tell you that somewhere around seven years into practice, which regardless of their training, they just get better, which is about 10,000 hours of doing surgery. So um, it's interesting that you point about the whole um, master coaching, because again, if you're reading your fellow's cues, are they stressed? Are they not stressed? We actually use those skills into their personal life about how they process stress. You know, you have this situation here, don't do the surgical thing to do, which is just suppress it and ignore it. You know, actually learn the details and actually solve it. So um, we could talk for a long time. <laughs> we, and if you're in the mood to it, I might do some future podcasts here with you. But I just like to review really quickly is that we discussed again, this deep learning repetition that chronic pain actually fits the definition because there's a lot of repetition of very precise impulses that your brain memorizes. So you become experts at feeling pain. That's a problem. So again, the deep learning involves making mistakes, feeling the pain, saying, okay, that didn't work. I'm gonna try something different. So as opposed to fear making mistakes, which makes your world very small, it's a matter of, of reframing and seeing opportunity in the mistakes. The thing we think we talked about was motivation or deep ignition, that unfortunately chronic pain, your vision of life gets buried under anxiety and frustration. Again, the unconscious brain is a million times stronger than your conscious brain. So you have to be able to de-energize those circuits first at the same time you nurture your vision. The last thing we talked about was a master coaching, which is um, reading the cues, learning about who your patient is, who you are as a person. I, I know a lot of patients don't feel heard anymore and they are correct. Mm. So Dan, if you might just take a few minutes in general, um, I'm guessing a few things came to light today that you hadn't really thought of in terms of pain and talent. So I'm just curious what your observations are in general to people suffering from, let's say anxiety, which is the biggest problem. Yeah. So based on, the, based on this learning process we discussed today, trying to create a bit of a bridge between your talent world and my anxiety world, just, I'm just curious what some of your overall thoughts are today. Yeah, it's interesting, and and that that so much of this of, of of life in general is about perspective. I think, and this highlighted our conversation highlighted that for me. You know, to it seems like no matter what is going on, there's always an alternate perspective you can take. And this idea that I think your work highlights around anxiety to say, okay, what is this? Anxiety basically is a good thing. It's a it's a useful thing that our brain has found useful for a long, long time. Right, and when it uh, to really realize that's what's going on. Um, that sort of framing is such a such a powerful thing. I think that resonated very well with me. And this idea that you can become an expert in pain, I'd never really thought of it that way. That that resonated too. This um, this idea that even the bad experiences in life that we're kind of getting imprinted on and repeating over and over again are getting um, into us in ways that are sometimes healthy and sometimes not healthy. And and the idea that um, that both you know, learning some new skill and also you know, unlearning a, a skill and, and, and learning the skill of, uh, of, of health is, um, that's a cool way to think of it. I never really thought of that larger, that larger point. 
So I appreciate you bringing a spotlight on that. Well, we look at the talent code again, maybe realize that the solution for anxiety isn't solving anxiety. It's again, looking at your entire life as a performance, mm. is a learned skill set that as you learn to live your life more effectively, efficiently, whatever you want to call it, you just spend less time in defense and more time doing what you want to do. So it's just an overall skill set. There's multiple complex layers to it. And again, the point, the trick is trying to unbury yourself from anxiety and anger enough to actually start nurturing those skills. But, you know, really, if you think about this carefully, is you start nurturing these circuits that are enjoyable and you use the pain circuits less, then that's where your brain starts to develop. I mean, one of the cardinal rules we have in treating chronic anxiety is not discussing your medical care, not discussing your pain, no complaining, no criticism, no giving unasked for advice, just listening, which I'm not doing very well today. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in general, I mean, your brain's going to develop where every place is attention. So learning how to live, a, I mean, we become experts at dysfunctional coping skills. We're not experts at nurturing joy. And so develop expertise in those two domains actually changes your entire life. Then you leave anxiety in the dust. It's always going to be there. You can't survive without it. So it's this whole big picture that's really come to light as I reread your talent code and looked at it again, thinking about, you know, people get frustrated as they say, if you're trying to solve your pain, you're going to make it worse, which is true. But if you just work on just creating this whole life that's great, become an expert of living a good life, that's where the solution lies. It's great. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. No, it's like almost like there's these, you can click into a different mode. Right. You know, it's right there to be accessed. It's not something that you're starting from zero on because we all kind of remember what that's like. We all have had those, uh, we all are capable of, of sort of switching on that light bulb. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you again very much. This was uh, really enlightening for me also. I really enjoyed this and uh, I really appreciate your uh, insights into just learning in general, lots of different realms and really wonderful stuff. I appreciate your work. It's fun for to have a good conversation with you, David. Let's do it again sometime. I'd like to thank our guest, Dan Coyle, for being on the show today and for sharing his insights into each of the core processes of high performance, deep practice, ignition, and master coaching. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.